As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. A strange spiralling white light was spotted in the early morning sky over Sydney with even sceptical witnesses wondering if it was a UFO. They were last seen on the beach with a tall man and that's the best description police have ever had of him. More than 17 years after Harold Holt disappeared into raging surf at Cheviot Beach, his widow has finally revealed his last romantic words. Shocking, terrifying, mesmerising. That's the way a number of Australians have described their alleged encounter with the Yowie. It's time for the Weird Crap in Australia podcast. Welcome to the Weird Crap in Australia podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Soul. Joining me, of course, is researcher extraordinaire herself, Holly Soul. Lots of books were read this week. Lots of books have been read this week. I have even read a book. Uh, and, I mean, let's face it, uh, the uh, the person we're going to be talking about today is an absolute icon of Australia. Uh, most people have, even if you've never read the book, if you've never seen the show, if you've never watched the movie, you absolutely know who we're talking about. He's one of the internet's triad of goodness. Absolutely. And what's uh, what's even more special about this episode is this actually concludes something. What's it conclude, Holly? Today we're taking a look back at Australia's most beloved and missed son and the conclusion to our Crocodile Hunter trilogy. In this episode, we take a look at the incredible life of Steve Owen, the Crocodile Hunter. That's right. This concludes our Crocodile Hunter trilogy. If you uh, feel like uh, catching up, maybe you've missed out, maybe you're one of our new lockdown listeners and I uh, hope we can keep you at least a little bit com- uh, of company um, as you stare at your walls thinking, I could absolutely kill and eat my roommate. But should I? Could I? Will I? I've already done it. They're already in the oven. Damn, I'm going to jail. Unless I eat them, that way I can cover it all up. Then they become one with me. Then I am two people. Then I have the strength of two people. Oh, look, I'm in jail. I feel like I should fucking run. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting there horrified. Like, I just thought about someone would just draw on the walls. No, you're like, I'm just going to cook and eat my roommate. <laughs> I read, Fuck. I read an art. Well, we're not roommates. We're married. So Still live not, together. Yeah, we live together because we're married. We there say, are married people who don't live together. That is true. But, uh, you know, I don't consider us like housemates or roommates. Uh, <laughs> the reason for that little uh, monologue, number one, I've been watching a lot of The Office to sort of unwind and that's how Dr- uh, Dwight Schrute talks. So it's a very uh, much an impression of him. Uh, I read an article today <laughs> about roommates ready to fucking murder the shit out of each other. 
And what I did just there is basically a breakdown of where that article was going. So I just thought that'd be funny. Horrified. I hope, I hope I didn't Fucking ins- horrified. I hope I didn't incite any murders. <laughs> we won't know, will we? They'll let us know. We always find out. Um, fuck, I really derailed us. Yes, you did. Steve Irwin, uh, like I said, welcome if you're a lockdown uh, buddy. Uh, if you've never heard uh, the story of Rob Ensel, uh, that is essentially the the start of the Crocodile Hunter legacy in Australia. Um, that's what uh, Crocodile Dundee was based on. The character, of course, uh, portrayed by Paul Hogan. Now we've covered both Rob Ensel and Paul Hogan. Um, so Steve- Rod, as sorry, in Rodney, Rod, sorry. not Robert, Rodney. Um, so Rod Ensel, uh, you'll have to forgive me, folks. This is going to be a 44-hour week for me. I'm going to end up working six days this week. I am absolutely exhausted. Holly's been doing overtime I will as well. be fixing his mistakes as we go to try and keep us on track. <laughs> Good luck. Unless he I think horrifies me into silence again. I, I think you're as tired as uh, as I am at the moment. Uh, so this definitely wraps up that trilogy. And if you want to get that full legacy, that's how you get it. Uh, what's also exciting about this is we've actually kind of spaced it out year on year. So this is year four of the podcast. Uh, year three was Paul Hogan. Year two was uh, Rob, Ron. Rod. Rod Ansel. Um, so, and- Volume three and four and two, should have just done it in order, two, three and four of the Weird Crap in Australia book series. Uh, Book three to be written, book four to be written, but book two coming out in September. (laughs) Book two is out now at time of release. So uh, it is. Go go buy it. (laughs) Have you not bought it? Stop what you're doing right now. Go to Amazon.com. I mean, you're probably on your phone. You could multitask. You could go to Amazon.com. Get the Kindle edition. Lulu.com for the paperback. Impact Comics, if you uh, want to have a brick and mortar store, impactcomics.com.au, they have it as well. Now, what uh, what we've tried to accomplish here is essentially like the legacy from, you know, the inspiration all the way through essentially to the artistic uh, endeavor, you know, the, the artistic portrayal of the Crocodile Hunter. And now we have actually come full circle and the esoteric thought of what the Crocodile Hunter is becomes real in the form of Steve Irwin. A little bit of chaos magic there, Holly. Sure, why not? <laughs> well, that's true. You put an idea out into the universe and then it becomes real. Crocodile Dundee becomes the Crocodile Hunter, the actual real-life version of Crocodile Dundee. Steve Irwin was born on the 22nd of February, 1962, in Melbourne. He was described as being a hyperactive child, brimming with curiosity with the world around him. His father, Bob Irwin, was a plumber by trade, and his mother, Lynn, worked as a nurse in the maternity ward. Steve was the middle child and only boy born to the Irwins. How many sisters did he have? One younger, one older. Joy Ah. and Mandy. So there was only three Irwin children. There was only three Irwin kids, yeah. So the reason I qualify that is, you know, when you have a fourth, sometimes they count the second as the middle or sometimes they count the third as the middle in a fourth. No, there were only three kids. Not that I know anything about middle children. Because we're both the oldest. (laughs) His father, a keen bushman, would take Steve out into the Australian scrub when Bob went on his frequent snake catching trips in order to fulfil contracts for the local reptile parks. 
The snakes themselves would be used for the development of antivenin to be administered to snakebite victims. This was relatively new, only being developed in the 1950s. We covered this in our snakes and spiders episode. No, it was just snakes and it was, was episode it? 99 because it was like the tiny little bit I needed to get to episode 100. Have we not done spiders yet? Not yet. That's oh. what I'm saving for my ne- for one of my future oh. animal things when I can face them. Well, we've definitely <laughs> done snakes and we covered the creation of uh, antivenom, which is a minute should you be bitten by a snake. If you've uh, been bitten by a snake and are administered antivenin, you're going to die. <laughs> there's, what do we have, 10 of the most venomous snakes in the I think it's seven out of 10. Yeah. Yeah. All here in Australia. Yeah. All right. We have a quote here from Bob Irwin's book, The Last Crocodile Hunter. When he was just four years old, I took him out to Sunbury on the western periphery of Melbourne. I was on a mission to catch eastern brown snakes. I taught him bush skills and he relished learning all about the environment and how it all worked in the wild. He was a good learner because he was just so naturally inquisitive. I was trying to concentrate on the job at hand while looking after a child who couldn't stand still for more than two minutes. On this day he was in sight, just over a slight rise, not far away. But then I must have lost concentration for a millisecond because he'd suddenly vanished. Then I heard him shout, Dad, I got one. I got one. I knew straight away that this wasn't going to be good. I raced in the direction of his exhilarated voice. Where are you? I shouted, struggling to catch my breath. I've got a big brown snake. I thought I'd been running as fast as I could, but those words doubled my speed. As I scrambled over granite boulders, I finally saw him on the side of my hill. My heart was in my mouth as I caught sight of him. He didn't have one snake. He had two. Two of the biggest eastern brown snakes I'd ever seen, one in each hand. He had no catching bag, wearing only sandals, the skin on his feet fully exposed. It was another lesson in parenting that I knew I needed to be more attentive to in the future, particularly workplace health and safety. Which is funny because Steve always wore shorts. (laughs) Always wore shorts. (laughs) But yeah, you can just imagine that, can't you? Little tiny Steve Irwin vanishes. Daddy, I got one. I got a snake. Here's a second one. (laughs) Fuck, fuck, fuck. That would be my, (laughs) if my kid runs up and is like, oh, can I have this pet snake? And it's fucking hissing and carrying on. I'd just be like, fuck, 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 fuck. Holly, save the kid. Fuck, 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 fuck. <laughs> Not Matthew saved the kid. Holly saved the kid. Well, when I was very little, and, and I probably brought this up in the snake episode, uh, we went to a reptile park and you could, you know, you could play with the snakes and all this stuff. And Lindsay had quite a lot. Lindsay, my brother, had quite a large boa constrictor wrapped around his neck. And I was like, okay, well, I'll take the smaller one. And I don't know how dramatic the situation was because it's childhood memory and I can't really remember that well. But I do think that my little sister, Emma, grabbed the snake by its tail. It hissed and the trainer was very quick. Well, not the trainer, the keeper was very quick to to, uh, stop the snake from getting me. And ever since then, I've had quite a healthy respect for snakes which is I stay the fuck away from them. (laughs) I don't bother them. They don't bother me. (laughs) And so you ever see a snake in the wild? Do what I do. Stay still 
I do it out of terror, but you should do it out of common sense. You stay completely still. It will hiss at you. It will carry on. And then it will slowly walk away. It has no interest in being anywhere near you. Definitely don't try and pull a Steve Owen. He was doing it for like 40 years. Well, there's always this real, this silly notion that snakes are aggressive. They're not being aggressive when they rear up and they hiss what they're actually saying to you. And Steve was very good at illustrating this in all of his TV shows. The snake is saying, you're scaring me. Don't move. Which is why he was always like, you're all right, sweetheart. You're all yeah. right. <laughs> He's going, the, the snake is saying, please don't come near me. You are scaring me. So if you interpret it that way, stay completely still to become non-aggressive. The snake will continue to hiss at you and scare the shit out of you. Then it will move away a little bit. Turn to face you again to see if you've moved. Probably hiss a little bit more and then it will go on its little way. Remember, it's saying, I'm scared of you, human. That's what it's saying. You're a lot bigger than me. Yeah, you're scaring me. It's when you you um, re-contextualize a snake, an aggressive snake action like that, it actually completely takes the fangs out of the encounter. I knew I should have stopped you before you've made that statement. You should have, but you didn't. In 1970, Bob Irwin found himself demotivated by his profession as a plumber. And <laughs> I've been demotivated uh, as my profession in as in retail management, especially this fucking week. I'm having some issues. I think it's pretty obvious. I'm glad we're talking about Steve. <laughs> he continued to be drawn to the idea of opening a reptile park, realizing that this was almost doomed to failure in Mel- in Victoria, where it was cold and rainy all the time. He and Lynn talked it over and they decided to move the family from Melbourne to Queensland. I mean, if you want to go to uh, snake capital territory, like Queensland is your place to go. Because it's warm. There's lots of sunshine. Uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And beautiful. There are absolutely gorgeous snakes, especially in the rainforest up there. Mm-hmm. You get all your nice, like your, your green tree snakes, which have that beautiful, like deep green color to the their scales. Green ones. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, and also like they'll eat you. <laughs> don't they always find boas in their toilets? Pythons and shit get uh, into the plumbing. I don't know whether it comes out of America or Australia. I honestly don't know anymore. The Pretty internet sure is one big environment. Imagine like sitting down, you're going to do, you know, the most sacred and private of all things. And you hear a. <laughs> there you are. Pants down <laughs> near your ankles. There's a snake just going. <laughs> Between your legs. Getting ready to bite your bum. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're going to have nightmares tonight. You will. The initial building in the park was a large shed, which they doubled as their home. The family, Steve included, worked on building the dwelling into a nature park, which became known as the Barrowa Reptile Park. After six months... Here's like a snake... After six months of back-breaking labour, the park opened on the 11th of April, 1973. There are a lot of sources on the internet that say it opened in 1970. That date is taken from Bob Irwin's biography, so he would know. Yeah. Well, his biographer definitely knew. Well, he had input, and I'm pretty sure Amanda French was more than happy to go with the dates that he was supplying. Absolutely. Like, no, I'm not not slagging off the credibility of their book whatsoever. No, I'm just propping it up. Yeah. Um. (laughs) 
How do you feel about them referring to this shed as a reptile park that they're also living in? That doesn't that sounds bogan for like we're living in a shed and we have a couple of snakes inside and we charge people occasionally to come gander. Well, they didn't actually start charging until they'd built an actual facility for it. Yeah. So they just started in the shed as like a base of operations. Yeah, I think this is it's lovely to have a dream. Yes. Right. And I think that's what we that's where we're at at this stage. It's not a reptile park. It's it's a dream. It's a it's a it's a base for a reptile park. Should should they get to make one? Well, in his biography, Bob said that Lynn had a saying that if you failed at something you wanted to do, you just didn't want it hard enough. I absolutely agree. Um, one thing that I've learned, at, at least in podcasting, is I mean we we went through so many failed projects before we found one that resonated with audiences, and. You know, you got to keep going. Like failure, failure is not something to be scared of because it's a learning experience. Failure is learning how to do something the wrong way so that you can learn to do it the right way when you finally get there. Yeah, fail to invent the light bulb. No, I just learned how to not invent one a thousand times. Make sure, yeah, just keep pursuing. Like if you really, really want it, you'll get there. You'll get there. Just keep fighting. The initial exhibits consisted of the family reptile pets, including Fred the Scrub Python and other animals they'd acquired over the years. Initially, entry was 40 cents per adult and 20 cents for children, and the park initially stood at three acres in size. So when we went to Australia Zoo, which is what it would completely transform into, mm-hmm. how much was entry? It was definitely not 40 cents. About 50 bucks. <laughs> that's actually pretty good considering it's a, the size it's a zoo, of it. That's, a size, that's usually about how much they charge. And Taronga is nowhere near as well made. No, like uh, I, Holly has this... She loves animals. I have visited every zoo on the East Coast. And, and, <laughs> and some a little bit some, further yeah, around. Yeah, some in New Zealand as well. Uh, I would have to say that Australia Zoo, and we'll talk about a little bit more in, in a couple of episodes because this will be a, a maybe two or three-parter. The thing about Australia Zoo is that it's not built for humans. It's built for the animals. Humans are the afterthought. Yeah, and it's designed for you to actually experience the wild with the animals, which are not ex- exhibits, they live there. Pro tip, if you go and visit, visit on a rain, on a cloudy day with slight rain because the animals are out and everywhere. Remember the little wombat that we came up? We saw the wombat yeah, wandering the up. wombat nuzzled you. <laughs> oh, that was lovely. It was so little and fat. <laughs> Reminded me of me at the time. I was big and fat, but still, you know. The Barrowa Park grew to encompass not only reptiles, but expanded to include a wedge-tailed eagle whose wing had almost been shot off by a farmer. Old man Freshy the Crocodile, who managed to grab hold of Bob Irwin's arm, and an entire bushload of different critters. While playing cricket at school one day, Steve got bored waiting for something to happen and went looking through the grass. He grabbed hold of a red belly black snake, deciding to place it on the bus driver's esky for safekeeping until he could return to it. Deciding that one was not enough, he then added a few more snakes to the mix and hoisted the esky onto the bus grinning ear to ear to the bus driver the entire time. The driver was furious and told Bob as soon as they returned little Steve to the reptile park. Bob called him a bloody turkey and the nickname stuck through Steve and Bob's adventures together. (laughs) Steve Irwin is a little dirt person. (laughs) Uh, Everyone knows a dirt person. Everyone knows that person that likes to go out into the bush in the scrub. Now, to be fair, I like we lived on the back of uh, the bush uh, and I think it'd be fair to call me a bit of a dirt person. 
because we, we liked had- we liked to go out in the bush. I mean, you did too. We had a hundred acres down in Goulburn that we went for all the holidays. Yeah, but I don't count that a hundred percent. Like we like, bathed I every third up, day. It was bush. <laughs> I grew up in it. You used it as a vacation spot. Yes, to get the fuck away from which, people which is not the same. In no my one book. in my family likes people. <laughs> oh, and you know, I love all of you who are listening. People as a collective. And my friends and most of my family. That's it. Anyway, so this little kid is one of those kids. He's like, hey, hey, mister, mister, look, 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 I found a snake. Hey, mister, mister, look, look, I found a log. Hey, mister, mister, look, I found a crocodile and its name is Birdie and I'm going to ride it to school. (laughs) That's this kid. I can imagine that actually. This hyperactive, bouncing fucking kid who is picking up everything. Hey, teacher, I found a spider. What kind (laughs) of spider is it? Teacher standing on the fucking desk going, get the fuck away from me. Mm. That's this child. That's this child, which is- you need that sort of, like, if you're a jaded adult, I think, honestly, there should be some sort of program, a properly vetted program, where every cranky-ass adult should be paired with a hyperactive child. I feel that would just make the adult more cranky. Well, you kind of married a, a, a hyperactive And I'm cranky adult all the time. <laughs> <laughs> holy, holy, look, I found a bug. Get the fuck away from me. Actually, to be fair, you're more the like, <laughs> I found a bug person. We'll go out on a bushwalk and you'd be like, I found a mossy rock. <laughs> Look at this bit of quartz. It's got some quartz in it. Like, yes, yep. Holly. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Quartz rock. Good job. I'm going to put this in, in my backpack for later. <laughs> and yep. throws it behind him. <laughs> Bob would work with Steve as his partner in all things nature and taught Steve everything he needed to know about animal conservation. Though considering the zoological environment of the time, it's fair to say Bob and a few select others actually wrote the instruction manuals on conservation in the 70s and 80s. How much, and I mean, you've done the reading on Bob's book. I've Mm -hmm. only read Terry's. How much do you think that Bob was interested in being like this ecological warrior? Was it more that he just had an interest in reptiles and made his passion his profession? Or do you think, like, is there really strong evidence to suggest that he was a conservationist? There is a part in the book where he goes over to Komodo to look at the Komodo dragons and he talks about getting off the boat and landing in a pile of trash and him just feeling sick from it. He was always going to be a conservationist. He did have an awareness of of human destruction in the environment. Yep. Because that's one of one of the things that a lot of people forget about Steve Irwin. Um, he continued to buy land as quickly as he could. He Whenever funneled, it came up, he grabbed it. He funneled his money into um, conservation. He loved the natural world. And we don't have that much anymore. Like there are still people these days who are like, burn it all, tear it all, chew it up, destroy it. Looking at you, president of fucking Brazil with the Amazon. Yeah. I mean, there's only so much nature that gets around and we keep knocking it down. But Steve Irwin, he was not that dude. He was the- He was the opposite. And I mean, he even went over to the States and like founded sanctuaries and things like that and would rescue crocodiles out of like golf courses. Uh, Sorry, alligators. Sorry. Thank you for the correction. Um, There's something that I want to get into as well uh, when we talk about the TV show, but he was part of- uh, he went over to uh, East Timor during their civil war. 
Are you talking about like the crocodile in the very tiny pond? And he, he rescued yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I saw that one too. Would, it, would that would you refer to that as the East Timor Civil War? Because Australian peacekeepers were over there. I honestly have no clue. I don't know much about the Australian Defence Forces history. Yeah. But we'll talk of the World Wars. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we talk about the show. But he was the wildlife warrior. The, the show kind of came out of just the fact that he wanted to spread the message. But we'll get into that. Yeah. We have another quote here from Bob Owen. When Steve said he wanted to work for me in the reptile park, he clearly thought it it might involve some kind of apprenticeship first. In 1984, Lynn and I took our first holiday together in 15 years, reluctantly handing our kids the keys to the park. To our horror, but not surprise, we'd only been gone some 15 minutes when Steve decided to hand-feed Anvil, a large resident salty, in front of a large group of patrons. This live crocodile demonstrations continued until we returned six weeks later, horrified to find that not only was he doing this outrageously dangerous thing, but he was also charging people extra for the privilege of witnessing it. You can tell Matthew hasn't actually read the quotes because you can start hearing him laughing as he's reading them. <laughs> it's so on brand for Steve Irwin. Like, Dad's gone quick. She should- Throw me the chicken. <laughs> Quick. No parents are home. We got to do some fun shit. But I, it, it's so um, it's so Australian. It's like not only are you going to do something stupid and dangerous. You're going to charge people it, to watch it. You're going to make people. Yeah. Hey, you want to watch me punch myself in the face? Absolutely. I do. Five bucks. <laughs> Give me five bucks. I'll punch myself in the face. All right. <laughs> you want to see me punch out a tooth? Yes. 20 bucks. That's how it is. Like Especially it, once you've had a couple of beers. <laughs> go to an Australian pub, find the best pool player and ask them to show you their greatest trick shot. And I'll be like, absolutely, 10 bucks. We're all hustlers here. All of us. Hustle culture is real. And we still run on a liquor-based economy. Yep. Hey, can you give me a hand moving some shit? I'll absolutely, a for a beer. slab of beer. I did a favor for one of our department managers this week. What can I buy you to come in? <laughs> That's what he said. He said, what What can I buy you to come in and work for me tonight? Obviously, the propaganda around the Rum Rebellion did not sink yeah. into us one bit. Because I get paid to come into work. And then it's like, what beer can I get you to come into work? I'm a little bit different. I pay people in chocolate. <laughs> I will do a lot for some, some free booze, actually. Booze <laughs> is expensive. Steve worked well with his family, who were all dedicated to the conservation and rehabilitation of the animals in the family park. In 1982, attempting to update the name and encompass the more diverse cast of animals housed in the zoo, the park was renamed to the Queensland Reptile and Fauna Park, with another five acres added to the grounds when they purchased the lot next door. The park was doing so well they had to find staff to assist them. As we got on our feet financially we could afford to employ staff for the first time. Now that the park had quite literally doubled in size, it had become a lot for our small family to manage. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But in the early days, I struggled to find appropriate people to fill those positions. After the social liberation movement swept across Australia at the tail end of the 1970s, a large majority of applicants openly smoked marijuana and they weren't backwards in coming forwards in about mentioning it in the job interview. I'd have to explain that because of the kind of work they'd be doing, dealing with venomous reptiles, crocodiles and large birds of prey, I couldn't risk employing someone with reduced faculties. I don't know how many people I must have interviewed before I finally found a handful of dependable people who shared our vision. How ripped do you have to be to look at a crocodile with a joint in your hand and go, I could wrestle that. <laughs> About two bong hits. Yeah. No, no. Okay. <laughs> this is what's actually going to happen. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're a little bit, you're a little bit high. You start to commune with animals <laughs> <laughs> because I've been around people who have smoked, and are like, dude, yeah, man, your cat is talking to me. <laughs> oh, yeah? What's it saying? Just finds this whole thing ridiculous, man. <laughs> this whole thing's just ridiculous. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's like a thought bubble is above her head, and I can just read what she's thinking. <laughs> She finds the whole thing ridiculous. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> could you, I, I could just imagine sitting there smoking weed and, and talking to a crocodile quite easily. The next thing you know, the crocodile's got your arm. Hey, give me back my joint. You gonna eat that, man? Fuck, that makes me hungry. <laughs> In 1987, the Crocodile Environmental Park was opened with the Irwins attempting to educate the public on saltwater crocodile conservation. In the 1960s, saltwater crocodiles had been almost completely wiped out by hunters, poachers, and native people's hunting, as well as for the crocodile skin industry. Isn't that crazy to think now? It's like crocodile farming is one of Australia's largest exports. Mm -hmm. Crocodile meat, crocodile leather. Uh, We have more crocodiles than we know what to do with now, but- it, it's one of those success stories where farming and environmentalism sort of came together uh, where people suggested, hey, like, you know, poaching these animals is going to wipe them out. But if we overbreed, we can actually export the goods. Now, if you're like me and you don't like harming animals in any way, shape or form, this idea is still abhorrent to you. However, I'm also a realist. And if you can find a way to farm an animal and preserve it and increase its population, I find that a far more like palatable option than wiping a species out. It is actual sustainable use, not the way that they use sustainable use now. 
Yeah. It's like we all have those gut reactions when we see poachers in Africa, but some of the communities have been able to actually use poaching to turn it into an industry so that fat, rich dentists can go over and murder something for the fun of it, but they've actually been able to use that it like they they charge for the privilege of shooting and then they use that money to build a park and the lions that are actually being killed are the older ones the sicker ones things along those lines which nature it's probably going to take its course soon anyway i'm not saying that it's nice i'm not saying that it's right but if there's a way to stop people murdering the shit out of something or at least wanting to do it so often that you have to overbreed you know, it's 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 a better of two horrible options, you know, because we don't want to see that, like, we're living in one of the worst eras of extinction since a meteorite blew the dinosaurs the fuck up. So, you know, any success is success at this point. We can't just Jurassic Park everything. But we can't we, even do that now. But when we can, it's I want- still not a license. I want a small lion that only grows to the size of a house cat. I'm willing to let you have a T-Rex if it's the size of oh, my cat. that'd be so cool. <laughs> if it's the size of a chicken, you can have it. But and that's it. it. And, like and it sleeps out here. It does not sleep in my bed. They'd try and eat you and it'd just be like, because its teeth would be so little. A T-Rex that size would probably be able to eat us. It'd be like one of those combies. Velociraptor. Combies, chompies, whatever. Laws were changed in 1971 to protect the saltwater crocodile. But like most large predators, there was always someone willing to kill one to protect their livestock or in retribution for an attack. I mean, you guys all know how I feel about this. I don't like it when we go into their environment and they do what they are naturally inclined to do. Sharks, dingoes, crocodiles. Tasmanian tigers. And then we get pissed at them and, uh, and attack them. It's like that's animals just do what they do. They don't think about what they're doing. They just run on instincts. We think about what we're doing, which means we should be more responsible, not the animal. A lot of that is reflected in Bob Owen's book. I'm sitting here thinking, yes, I've heard that recently. Where have I heard that recently? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad me and Bob agree. I'm very much on the... Look, I, I thought Steve was a hero. I think his whole family have done heroic things. And I think a lot of them have, you know, contributed to, you know, some amazing conservation efforts. I mean... Like Steve Irwin could hold court with a prime minister and they would have to listen. He did. John Howard. Yeah. He, he told him exactly what should happen. It was the Irwin's mission to educate the world by assisting their crocodilian residents in their park in rehabilitation and relocation when they became a nuisance for local farmers and communities. Bob Irwin himself got caught by a couple of crocodilians during his public learning experiences, which he conducted at the park. Oh, now we've witnessed one of these, like uh, these what displays. They, they call them learning experiences, and one thing they'll tell you straight up uh, when they do them, they're like, Don't "We fucking do it." <laughs> they're like, "We're not trainers. All we're doing is demonstrating natural behaviors, so you don't get eaten by a crocodile." And it's really interesting. You have two keepers uh, in the enclosure at the same time. One is a spotter. And what the other one does is make themselves essentially prey. And then the other trainer explains exactly what is happening, like why the crocodile is behaving in the way it is. And they also warn whether the crocodile's like creeping up ready to lunge at him. And there's this sort of exhilaration of like, oh my God, am I going to see a man get eaten today? (laughs) But it's, it's just, yeah, it's really, it's not, it's not a stunt. Um, It's not a show. 
it's educational and that's one thing I also love about Australia Zoo. It's it's not about trying to get these animals to do flips. It's about encouraging them to do their natural behaviours to encourage learning and understanding. Yeah, you want to see how powerful a crocodile's bite is? Here's a chicken and there's a chicken gone. Bye-bye, chicken. Very quickly. The crocodile hunter was known to many as fearless and that reputation began early on in his career. In 1990, while the pair were crashing crocodiles in far north Queensland. Bob and Steve took off into the mangroves to go exploring. After a few hours, they set up camp in their dinghy, dropping lines in the water to catch their dinner. Steve, of course, wandered off while Bob sat minding the lines. As my sinker plopped into the water, I noticed a number of turtle heads poking out of the water all around us. I'd seen this type of turtle on the Burdekin before, but we'd always been in too much of a hurry to stop and take a better look. They weren't your average freshwater turtle. They had really big heads and were unusually pale in colour. As we sat there quietly, I grew more and more curious about them. Let's grab one of these guys and see what they are, I said to Steve. Just like that, he was over the side, jumping straight onto one of these turtles in the notoriously crocodile-infested Burdekin River and back into the boat just as fast. What Steve hauled into the boat was a species that, at the time, had yet to be scientifically described. The pair took photos of four turtles, then returned them to the water. They couldn't identify the turtles from field guides, and so contacted a friend, herpetologist John Kerr. John stated it was completely undiscovered species of turtle, after viewing the photos, and named the turtle after the pair, Elysia Irwini, or Irwin's turtle. I would be really fucking pissed off if not every single herpetologist since the early 90s became one because of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I mean, it's possible, but I doubt it. (laughs) Actually, I saw an artist the other day who took one of us, like what he wanted to do was recreate the turtles, but Mm. he took a turtle from like the most famous turtle locations Mm. and he did like one of the Australian species. And so he did, like, each brother was a different species of turtle from uh, different continents. That's cool. Yeah, I thought it was really cool. One of them would have been a massive snapping turtle, surely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) That would have been (laughs) Raph. While it was named to honour both Irwins, the Latin is actually a little bit off. It's singular with the suffix I, when it should correctly be Irwinorum as a collective name. This has led to the idea that it was named after Steve alone, which is incorrect. In October 1991, a group of tourists, much like any other, travelled through the gates of Queensland Reptile and Fauna Park, looking around and enjoying the sights and sound of Australia's vast array of fauna. Amongst the tourists was a young woman named Terry Raines, a naturalist from Oregon, USA. I don't think that's how... How did you pronounce Oregon? Oregon. Oregon. Yeah, I didn't... See, there's there's something for so Oregon um, or Oregon. I don't know. Well, I don't or think it, I don't think it's Oregon. No, it's I think Oregon. it's Oregon. Yeah, I think it's Gen with a G E N. Yeah. Um, the reason I say this is because I listen to a lot of American podcasts, and whenever they pronounce Oregon incorrectly, they immediately get attacked by Oregonians. Oregonos. <laughs> oh, I'm treading. I, I'm walking a tightrope right here, aren't That's I? Sorry, the majority of our listeners are in California and Texas. It's fine. Good on you guys. 
I think isn't Texas and um and California really the the only thing they have in common now is that they're both smoking a lot of weed. I think I Texas is smoking weed now. I don't know. It's not really California definitely to. is. Oh yeah, they've been smoking it for years. It's just legal to do it's it. It's legal now. now. You get dispensaries there. Didn't expect to be talking so much weed this episode. <laughs> Terry was there to find a home for some rescued cougars and was sure that a reptile park wouldn't actually care much about the rep- mammals. Um, just to qualify here, we're not the talking- cats, not the women. We're, yeah, we're talking about cats, not a bunch of angry women that she is protecting. Sorry, I, I kind of find the idea of- Like, it's, you know, this is what happens to the, uh, you know, those horrible reality shows about the housewives of dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. Eventually, they get retired to an animal sanctuary and protected. <laughs> Terry <laughs> martini <was> t- <laughs> time, ladies. <laughs> Waiter comes out with the martinis, hands them all out. It's kind of funny. You're ridiculous. Terry was sure that she would see some new animals that she was yet to encounter while visiting and was certain the park would be like every other zoo she'd visited in Australia, more focused on tourism than conservation. Reservations aside, she decided to tour the park anyway. Terry arrived in time to catch one of the Irwin educational shows at the Crocodile Enclosures, which Steve Irwin was giving in his normal, excitable way. Oh man, if you've... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. You need to, like, we'll play some clips, not in this episode, in the next episode, but we'll play some clips. But if you've never heard the, like, Steve Irwin, like, just- this, The Irwin-ness. It's this pure <laughs> joy of, of, of being around any kind of animal. Like, and it wasn't just like, it wasn't limited to crocodiles. It was fucking everything. Spiders. He loved every, oh. Fish. Look at this toucan. Look at the beautiful rings around her nose. She's just gorgeous. It's not fast enough, but yes, we get the idea. (laughs) I've never seen anything like her. That's better. Is that, that, that's better. I'm pretty good at it. I'm, I'm not too bad at that one. You've been watching him for a very long time. It doesn't surprise me. Every Sunday night on 10 Capital. Every Sunday fucking night on 10 Capital, we watch Steve Irwin. Never actually showed up in my house. Every Sunday. Well, <laughs> uh, my brother Lindsay loved animals. Yep. And he naturally. Yeah. And he naturally gravitated towards it. And I liked the showman aspects of Steve Owen. And there was only fucking four channels when I was growing up. There wasn't a lot to watch. So anyone like running around with a snake going, you've never seen a snake quite like her. She's absolutely gorgeous. Look at those beautiful colors, that red belly. She's a big, 
big example of a reptile here. She's absolutely lovely. And I'd be like, put that fucking snake down. You're scaring the shit out of me. <laughs> well, Terry- Fuck, That takes a lot out of the throat. Yeah, it does. While she knew that the man's passion for crocs was comparable to her same passion for cougars, the <laughs> cat. <laughs> the cat. <laughs> she also knew one thing for sure after watching the demonstration. Steve Irwin was nuts. <laughs> then he described what he meant by capture. As he told the story, I was totally captivated. So were the other zoo visitors. Maybe it was because Steve was detailing the most astonishing set of actions any of us had ever heard about. Accomplished by a man who lived to tell the tale. If the croc is young, six feet long or smaller, he said, I'll catch it by hand. By hand? I had to capture all kinds of wildlife in Oregon, but never anything as dangerous as a six-foot-long saltwater crocodile in the water, in the dark, by hand? And that obviously was from Terry Owen's book, My Steve. When the talk was concluded, Terry approached Steve. They talked for a while, and Terry discussed her rescued cougars. Steve talked about his crocs. When the park closed that day and the two had to part ways, Steve told her if she was ever around, call in, because he'd like to see her again. There would be more encounters after that, and the pair, meeting by simple chance, would embark on their lives as conservationists together. Mirroring the fictional world of Crocodile Dundee so perfectly, it would almost make one wonder if Paul Hogan was some kind of truth-sayer. By this time, Steve had married Terry, an American tourist with a background in wildlife management that Steve had met at one of his crocodile demos. At one stage, the thought had crossed our minds that he might not ever settle down. We weren't confident that there was anyone out there who could keep up with Steve. So when he finally did, we could see that he'd found the perfect partner to launch it all off with. And of course that's true. I mean, like, Terry wasn't coming from, like, she wasn't just a regular lady who happened to come across the crocodile Dundee in the flesh. She was someone who had worked extensively uh, with American cougars and- Cats big enough to kill you. And she, like, in her book, she often described about being attacked by her rescue animals because they're big fucking animals. Like, Mm -hmm. the, the American cougar is a, it's one of those stocky cats, so it's really, really strong- and she describes in her book like being clawed, like like nearly scalped yeah. uh, by one of her rescue animals. So it's not like she wasn't, uh, you know, she was. She already had more than, she had a two feet in that world already. Yeah, she had a lot of experience in animals that would kill you rather than look at you. Terry was so well suited to the Irwin lifestyle that the pair spent their honeymoon shooting the pilot episode of what would eventually become Croc Files. The Croc Files episode would eventually evolve into the Crocodile Hunter Diaries TV show. According to his dad, Steve's entire ambition was to bring the encounters with nature from the TV screen into people's hearts, which would allow them to connect and thus make it harder for them to dismiss the environment out of hand. At the height of the Crocodile Hunter series, Steve's TV show reached 500 million people around the world, much more than Bob Irwin ever thought his park would reach when he moved the family from Melbourne to the Sunshine Coast in the early 1970s. And that is where we're going to leave it 
for part part one. one. That's the end of part one. Uh, Next part, we're going to be talking about the the, parts that I remember. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to discuss the production um, and we're going to discuss how Steve Irwin by himself managed to accomplish something that only another group of Australians would manage to accomplish, and that is create an enormous entertainment platform. So large, in fact, that The Wiggles and Steve Irwin- Crossed over. Would eventually cross over. (laughs) Because Australia's other- We've got three massive exports, or at least we did have three. Uh, Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter. Deceased. The Wiggles. Still going. And ACDC. Should have retired years ago. Kind of still going. <laughs> so th- not those the, not are- Not the original ACDC. <laughs> no. Well, and, and so they're like our three big cultural touchstones. And, you know, Steve Irwin managed to do that by himself. Um, so we're going to be talking about like the, you know, the height of his popularity, what went into making the show uh, and, um, you know, talking about how the, the uh, you know, Australia Zoo became bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, there's also some controversy to talk about as well. And we're going to get all into that next episode. Now, just a couple of uh, bits to hitch up with. Uh, don't forget, if you would like to contribute to the overall success of Weird Crap in Australia, if you'd like to help us make episodes, easiest way to do that is to become a Patreon supporter. Patreon dollars go directly into buying books uh, like uh, Terry Irwin's book, My Steve, and Bob Irwin's biography. Uh, both of those were purchased with Patreon dollars. That way we can make sure that we're researching these episodes so we're bringing you the best content we can and you can actually help us do that uh, by becoming a patreon supporter now we're not asking you to give you uh, to give us rather your dollars for free uh, we actually give you some bonuses if you become a subscriber so for the five dollar tier five dollar American which translates to about seven dollars Australian uh, for seven dollars Australian a month you get all of the mainline episodes of Weird Crap in Australia completely ad-free. A bonus mini-sode every week. So that's four bonus mini-sodes a month. And you get our work in progress audiobook chapters early. You get it before anyone else. If the audiobook never comes out, you're the only one who'll ever get it. And uh, those all release weekly. So we're giving you a bonus mini-sode every week, as well as a bonus audiobook chapter every week. And you get the mainline episodes completely ad-free as long as well as blog posts and any other little bits and pieces that we happen to do, extra interviews, all that sort of stuff. Um, That also comes to you in an exclusive uh, little, uh, what we call an RSS feed or your own podcast feed. And uh, that's only for $7 a month. Uh, Everyone... Uh, contributes that little amount and makes a big amount and it means that we can continue to expand and build and build and build. So, but we're not, we're not asking you to give us something for free. We're not like that. We're not panhandlers. We will give you bonus stuff uh, for signing up to the Patreon. If you'd like to do that, www.patreon.com type in weird crap in Australia in the search bar and you'll find us. Uh, Another thing that we've got out, it's out. It's out in the world now. You can get our book, Weird Crap in Australia, Volume 2, the complete research notes, which have been repurposed into a book from one entire year's worth of podcasting. It goes great 
with uh, our first book, which is We Crap in Australia, Volume 1. Now, you can purchase both books in physical edition from lulu.com or from our great mates over at Impact Comics, impactcomics.com.au. You'll be able to find that. Shoot them an order. We'll make sure it gets fulfilled. Now, just as we did with our first book, considering we're back in the lockdowns, we can't go out and see you guys. Anyone who purchases Weird Crap in Australia Volume 2 is going to be sent what's called a book plate. They'll have our signatures on it. You can put it on the book. You can frame it. You can put it inside the book. You can put it on your best mate's head. Whatever you want to do with it, you can do. Physical um, books. Now, we'll send that to you if you buy a physical book free of charge. All you need to do, buy the book, email us at weirdcrapinaustralia.com at gmail.com with your address. We'll shoot that to you free of charge for supporting us. And we want to give you a little bit of extra just because we can't go out and see people for uh, signings. Tentatively, we have October organized with Impact Comics for a signing. We just don't think it's going to happen. We don't want to disappoint people if it doesn't. So this is a, a an added bonus. And if you get a sticker and you put it on your book and you come and see us for a signing anyway, I'll sign it. Holly will sign it. You'll sign whatever you want as long as you buy a book. Absolutely. Well, be careful what you say, Holly. I know what I said. All right. (laughs) Get that genitalia out. Holly will sign it. I figured that someone's going to do it eventually. If I invite it on, at least I know it's going to happen. You're a braver person than I, Holly. Braver (laughs) person than I. I'm not going to commit to that whatsoever, but Holly definitely will apparently. (laughs) That's fine. Uh, So, yeah, head out. Weird Crap in Australia, Volume 2. If you can't find it, lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com, and it's on amazon.com in digital edition. Uh, last but not least, if you want a Weird Crap in Australia t-shirt, head to our Redbubble store, weirdcrapinaus.redbubble.com. There's a bunch of amazing designs, all done by my best mate, Ignacio. Uh, he does- <laughs> You're- you- Best physical mate listens to the show too. Be careful what you say here, dude. Well, my best artistic mate. There you go. That's better. My lo- my year long term collaborator, like brother been, from another mother. The, the guy I've been working uh, on projects with for four years now. Um, so Ignacio does all of our uh, artistic work. Um, you can get some amazing t shirts. One of my favorite is uh, he de- designed the Bushrangers of the future. So he actually turned all of our most infamous Bushrangers um, into sort of Power Rangers. It's an amazing design. Uh, he's also done all of our book covers and uh, a bunch of different T-shirts. Weird crap in ozaus.redbubble.com. You'll be able to grab yourself a T-shirt. Don't forget, if you do take one of those sheet, uh, if you do grab a T-shirt, take a photo, shoot it through to us, and I'll put you up on our social media as well as a bit of a thank you for that one. Uh, now, if you want to keep the conversation going, maybe you had a personal encounter with Steve Irwin. We would love to hear about it. Head to our social medias. You can find us on Facebook, type Weird Crap in Australia in the search engine. You can also email us, weirdcrapinaustralia at gmail.com. Do you have photos of you with Steve? Because that would be awesome too. Yeah, we'll put those up. Um, you can also find us on Instagram, Weird Crap in Australia, and you can find us lurking around on Twitter. Our handle is at Weird Crap in Oz, A-U-S. And as is customary, Holly needs to have those fun words. Crikey. That's all I got. That's a good one. (laughs) We'll leave it with that. Stay safe. Stay sane. Lockdown is tough. We will get through it together. Listen to more weed crap. You'll be fine. Vaccinate. Put a mask on. Wash your hands. We love you. We'll see you soon for more. Weed crap in Australia. Bye for now. Bye for now, folks.
The Weird Crap in Australia podcast is hosted and produced by Holly and Matthew Soul. Our editor is Blake Kell. Weird Crap in Australia is a production of The Modern Meltdown. <laughs>